from that one-chapter book of Jude. And next week, from Mike Traben, we're going to be hearing from that one-chapter book of Philemon. And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at that one-chapter book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. These are three books that are so short that they're usually glossed over. There's not a lot of time spent preaching on them. In fact, I have only heard one sermon on Philemon, and it was mine, and I'm looking forward to hearing somebody else preach it. I've, I've never heard a message or a teaching on Obadiah and have only studied the book of Jude. I've not heard it proclaimed, but all Scripture is suitable for instruction. And so we want to look at these books and see what God has for His church today from these voices from the past. So when I start a book, I like to spend some time with background study. So I'd like to share with you all of the background material I have on the great prophet Obadiah. I know nothing about Obadiah. <laughs> I dug and I dug. There are 14 different Obadiahs in the Hebrew Scriptures. None of them are the Obadiah who wrote the book, Obadiah. So, what do we know? Well, we think his name is Obadiah. We're not 100% sure of this because Obadiah translates to servant of the Lord. So, it may have been a title that he gave himself. I'm speaking with this prophetic voice on behalf of the Lord. I am Obadiah, servant of Yahweh. But it was a common name. So my opinion is Obadiah. All right. Who was it written to? Well, it was written to a people group that doesn't exist anymore. It's unusual. Most of the prophetic voices that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures are writing to Israel. They're writing to Judah. And here comes this Obadiah, and he writes to the Edomites. Not to Israel, not to Judah, to the Edomites. So that's a little unusual. There is one other thing that we know about Obadiah and its context. When I say we know, uh, I have an opinion about, and scholars disagree. When and why was it written? Uh, several scholars date it in the 10th century before Christ. Uh, I think it's more recent than that. I think it was written around 586 B.C. in response to the Babylonian invasion and harrowing of Jerusalem. So he was writing... 586 B.C., to the Edomites to warn them about the consequences of their behavior. But as I reflect on it, and as I've studied it, and I've considered it in its context, what little we have from what little we know about Obadiah, although the audience, it is the Edomites, the bad guys in this instance, I think it was also written for Judah. I want you to picture, if you will, a people who has been systematically, systematically abused, oppressed, and victimized by another people group. In fact, something so hurtful as this other people group really are their cousins. We, we could go so far as to say they're brothers, and the older brother is picking on the little brother over and over and over again. And now, in 586, when this book is written, Israel... Is, is divested of everything. They have been taken into captivity. They've lost Jerusalem. There seems to be no hope. And along comes the voice of Obadiah, speaking to the Edomites to encourage the people of Judah. 
Yes, they've been picking on you. Yes, you have been victimized. But there will come a day. There will come a day when judgment will justly come. And you will be seen. And what you once had will be restored to you and even more. So I think it's a message, yes, written to the Edomites, but it's also written to the people of Judah. So if you would please open your Bibles to the table of contents. Scroll down until you find Obadiah. I'd like to read the first ten verses of this little book to you. The vision that Obadiah saw, the sovereign Lord, says this concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. An envoy was sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us make war against Edom. The Lord says, Look, I will make you a weak nation. You will be greatly despised. So the Edomites, we know quite a bit about them. They were a prideful people. They had the wealth. They had the wisdom. They had the the fortress of Mount Seir. They were impenetrable. They were powerful. And they were proud. And here God says, I am going to make you small, Edom. You will be greatly despised. Your presumptuous heart has deceived you. You who reside in the safety of the rocky cliffs, whose home is high in the mountains, you think to yourself, no one can bring me down to the ground. Well, this message from God through Obadiah is, yes, someone can bring you down to the ground. You stand in arrogance before God. You oppress his people. You will be humbled. Even if you were to soar high like an eagle, even if you were to make your nest among the stars, I can bring you down even from there, says the Lord. I want you to envision, maybe you've seen this. I should have grabbed a picture to put up on the screen. But have you heard of the city Petra? It's this this beautiful, you, you walk through, well, walk, you ride through this trail, this narrow trail with cliffs going up so high around you. You can't see anything but the next curve. It's a very dangerous place to be if there's heavy rains because of the flooding in this. And you come out and it opens up and before you, carved into the sandstone, is this enormous temple. And you look around and you see all of these caves that have been carved into homes and temples and cathedrals. It, it, is, it is impressive. And it was a fortress towering above it, 2,000 feet above where it's already elevated, is Mount Seir. Good luck penetrating the Edomites and being able to get access to them. They were well defended by nature itself. And here God is saying, even if you were went to go so high as the eagles, that's not far enough. I can bring you down. Verse 5. If thieves came to rob you during the night, they would only steal as much as they wanted. If grape pickers came to harvest your vineyards, they would leave some behind for the poor. But you will be totally destroyed. Picture a robber coming into your home in the nighttime. Is he going to take absolutely everything you own? Or is he going to take what he can safely carry and get out of there? So the picture is, you might be robbed, 
Even after the grape harvest, there's going to be grapes on the ground for people to glean that they fail to pick up. But you, Edomites, you're going to have nothing. Your pride is going to be the end of you. Your, your possessions are going to be taken from you. Verse 6, how the people of Esau, Esau, okay, hang on to that. I thought we were talking about the Edomites, but now the prophet's calling the Edomites the people of Esau. How will the people of Esau will be thoroughly plundered? Their hidden valuables will be ransacked. All your allies will force you from your homeland. Your treaty partners will deceive you and overpower you. Your trusted friends will set an ambush for you that will take you by surprise. At that time, the Lord says, I will destroy the wise sages of Edom, the advisors from Esau's mountain. So we've seen they had hope in their possessions. Well, those are going to be taken. They had hope in their wisdom. I wanted to have another P word for wisdom. The only thing I came up with, perspicuity, and, and that seemed like too much. But, you know, why not? Their pride led them to depend upon their possessions and their perspicuity. And God is saying, nope, the wise will be gone. So now the only thing they have left is power, their military might. Well, bad news, verse 9. Your warriors will be shattered, O Taman. Taman was a great city where many warriors were from so that everyone will be destroyed from Esau's mountain. Because, so here's the reason, because you violently slaughtered your relatives, the people of Jacob, remember, the people of Esau. These are, this is family. You have destroyed your relatives, the people of Jacob. Shame will cover you, and you will be destroyed forever. Such an encouraging word for the people of Edom this morning. Any Edomites in the house? Yes. <laughs> it's a hard, hard message. Well, we need to understand the history. So jump back to Genesis chapter 25. You know the story maybe of, of Jacob and Esau. We have Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, were striving to have children. And finally, they conceive. And then they get this promise, this prophecy. In, in Genesis 25, verses 23, And the Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from within you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. That's, that's an ominous prophecy. So we have twins that represent two nations. One will be stronger, but one will serve the other. When the time came for Rebecca to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all reddish, like covered with a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Esau means hairy. So not hairy, H-A-R-R-Y, they didn't name him Harry. They named him Harry, H-A-I-R-Y, H-A-I-R-Y. His name means Esau, Harry. He's, look at this, this, this ruddy, covered in hair, reddish kid. He's just, have you ever seen so much hair, Isaac? Let's, let's name him Esau. He's, he's Harry. He's the hairy one. When his brother came out with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Yaakov. Yaakov, the heel grabber. 
uh, the deceiver, the manipulator. I don't know, they named their kids differently back then. <laughs> so we had Harry and heel grabber, Harry and deceiver. And we find out that these boys could not be more different than one another. Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was wearing flannel shirts and going out with his rifle over his shoulder to catch some game for the family, while Jacob is back at home watching A&E Network and learning some good recipes so that he'll be able to cook what is brought back. We find out that Esau grows in from a, a reddish, hairy little baby to a big, ruddy, hairy man. And Jacob is described as being smooth and hairless and small. They, they could not be more different from one another. So one day, Jacob is cooking some stew. And he's making up the stew, following that recipe he got from cooks.com. And it smells good. And Esau comes in from a long day out in the fields hunting, and he smells that stew, and he is famished. And he goes up to his brother, and he says, in, in the Hebrew, the best way to translate it is, is, red stuff, red stuff, eat it. It's, it's like a beast snarling, feed me this red stuff, this stew. Jacob said, all right. I'll feed you some of this award-winning stew, but it comes at a price, your birthright. Now, the birthright was a big deal. Uh, with the birthright came three things. One, if you have the birthright, you're getting twice the inheritance. So there's some financial repercussions here. If you are getting the birthright, then you are getting the Father's blessing. And thirdly, if you receive the birthright, you become the patriarch of the family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For stew. Esau was so driven by his desires, by his flesh, by his hunger, he gave up this precious gift for a momentary fleeting enjoyment of this food. How often does this happen to us when we have something? We have something that's good, that's beautiful, but we sacrifice it for something that's pragmatic or expedient or convenient. I think there's plenty of us, like Esau, who set aside the beautiful for the good right now. There's a powerful lesson here. This was such a foolish bargain that Esau, named Harry, was given a new name. Remember what he cried out when he came up to the stew? Edom, Edom, La'an, red stuff, red stuff, feed it to me. So he was given the name, the nickname, Edom, which means red. So we have the people of Jacob, and we have the people of Esau. We have the Edomites. And then we have the Jacobites? No. Just as Esau was given a nickname, Edom, so was Jacob given a new name. When he wrestled with God, he was given the name Israel. Israel, one who is governed by God. From deceiver, heel grabber, manipulator, 
to the one who is governed by God. So we have two brothers in the womb from whom two great nations will come, the Edomites and the Israelites. One will be stronger than the other, but one will serve the other. Well, the story goes on. We need a little bit more context because the deal was struck. The birthright was going to be given up, but somehow, somehow Jacob needs to get Isaac to give him the birthright. How how is he going to do this? They're very different people, Esau and Jacob. Well, Isaac was getting up there in years, and he was blind, losing his vision, and he is going to call his son Esau in to receive the paternal blessing. And Rebekah, the mom, is plotting with her son Jacob. He said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some goat, and we're going to make an amazing meal for your father. And then, so that he believes that you are Esau, we're going to take that goat skin, and we're going to put it on your arms, and we're going to put it on the back of your neck, so that when your father feels your arms and your neck, he'll think it's his other son, Esau. And I'm thinking, what in the world did Esau look like? (laughs) But that wasn't enough, because Esau smelled of earthy things, of the field, of the hunt, whereas Jacob smelled like a good kitchen with fine potpourri. The smell is not right. So they said, we're going to have to mask your scent, and so we're going to cover you with, with dirt and with soil so that you smell more like your brother. And Jacob goes into the tent with the lamb, or with the goat, to give to his father as a gift. And he says, all right, Dad. I mean, all right, Dad. I'm here for my blessing. Wait a minute. You don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. Come here. And he feels his arms. He feels the back of his neck. And he says, okay, you're my son Esau. And he gave him the blessing. He gave him the birthright. Esau, when he found out about this, was incensed, driven to anger, driven to rage, and set out to kill his brother. This is not a sermon on Jacob and the Genesis cycle. So I'm going to stop the story there. But you get the idea. This privileged status that was meant to be Esau's became Jacob's. As a result, there's a deep-seated bitterness between the brothers. Now, we see, if we keep going in the story, that in time, Esau and Jacob, they make amends. They make things right between the two of them. But you know how it is when one side of the family is at war with another side of the family for so long, even if the two people who are at the heart of the conflict make amends, there's deep-seated resentment. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain over the years that is still there. The families and the descendants of Esau never really forgive the families and the descendants of Jacob. As a result, for generations, the Edomites are vindictive towards the Israelites. God in Obadiah says no. No more will the Israelites be picked on, abused, victimized, oppressed by the Edomites. Your day is done, Edom. The day is done. 
Verse 10 of Obadiah. Because you violently slaughtered your relatives, the people of Jacob, shame will cover you and you will be destroyed forever. Shame will cover you. So what exactly happened in 586? As Paul Harvey would say, we quoted Paul Harvey last week, we may as well quote him this week. Now it's time for the rest of the story. Verse 11, we see that there's three offenses that Edom committed against the Israelites. You stood aloof while strangers took his army captive and foreigners advanced to his gates. When they cast lots over Jerusalem, you behaved as though you were in league with them. So what did they do in verse 11? They stood aloof. They did nothing. These are their brothers. These are their cousins. And they're standing there from their vaunted perch watching what the Babylonians are doing in this this raising of the city. And they did nothing. Well, is that a big deal? Well, God has already given us a picture of what he thinks about doing nothing. If, if we went to... Yeah, have you all heard the pet verse, uh, be sure your sin will find you out? This is one of those verses we like to use to get people in trouble. Right? Well, you know, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, be sure that your sin is going to find you out. Context matters. That's not what that verse is about. We find that verse in Numbers 32:23. And the context of this is the, the, the people of God are entering into the promised land. The 12 tribes are entering into the promised land. And as they're coming in, two of the tribes said, hey, y'all, we want to stay on the east side of the river. We want to stay on the east side of the Jordan. And you 10 can go on to the other side, but we want the east side which is now Jordan today. And the teaching was, okay, here's the deal. You two tribes can stay on the east side of the river, but there's a condition. The condition is when you see your brothers, when you see the other ten tribes being picked on, when you see the other ten tribes at war against an adversary, you take up arms And you join that fight on behalf of your brothers. You don't let the Jordan River serve as an obstacle for you doing the right thing. And if you do not do this thing, let's quote the verse. But if you do not do this, then look, you will have sinned against the Lord and know that your sin will find you out. So what is the sin that will find you out? Doing nothing when you should be doing something. Doing nothing to lift a finger to help a brother who's in need, instead just watching it happen and go, huh, better him than me. Doing nothing in the eyes of God is a big deal. James 4.17, so whoever knows what is good to do and does not do it is guilty of sin. So they did nothing. Count one. What's count two? Let's look at verse 12. You should not have gloated when your relatives suffered calamity. I love how Obadiah just keeps bringing this up. Your relatives. This is your family. You should not have gloated when your relatives suffered calamity. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah when they were destroyed. You should not have boasted when they suffered adversity. What did they do? 
They rejoiced at Israel's misfortune. They celebrated at the things that were happening to their brothers, to their cousins. You know, I think we're guilty of this as well. As you're driving down 75 and you are obeying the speed limit and you're driving responsibly and then that car is on your tail. You know that car. Sometimes you might be that car, but in this instance, you're not that car. And they're flashing their brights at you and they're swerving back and forth and finally, as soon as they can find a break in the traffic, they pass you going well over 90 miles an hour. And you just shake your head like a good Christian, pray for their salvation. And then a mile up the road, what do you see? A police car had pulled over that other car. And you think, what do you think? <laughs> they deserved it. They deserved it. And you rejoice over their misfortune. There's a German word for this, because of course there is, schadenfreude. This, this, this um, evil joy, this shadow joy, schadenfreude. It's when we laugh at somebody else's misfortune. When that person who got promoted ahead of us at work, but then they're in the first line of layoffs. <laughs> Scripture says, do not do this. Do not rejoice at someone else's misfortune. This is what the Edomites were doing. Look at Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn his wrath away from him. Job 31. We're going to be looking at Job in the adult education class later this morning. Job is searching his heart, thinking, what have I done to bring about this misfortune to me? What sins have I committed? And then he asks, well, if I have rejoiced over the misfortune of my enemy or exulted because calamity found him, no, I have not even permitted my mouth to sin by asking for his life through a curse. But do you hear it? Had I rejoiced over my enemy's misfortune, then this justice, this judgment that's on me, this sickness, is deserved. This is a big deal. So first, they did nothing. Second, they rejoiced in Israel's misfortune. And thirdly, verses 13 and 14, you should not have entered the city of my people when they experienced distress. I just want to say that again, and I want to highlight the verb. You should not have entered the city of my people when they experienced distress. You should not have joined in gloating over the misfortune when they suffered distress. You should not have looted their wealth even when they endured distress. The word for distress is Edam. The, the author here is giving us a pun. Edom, you should not have laughed at their Edam. Edom, you should not have celebrated their Edam. Edom, you should not have participated in the looting of the city in their Edam. They not only did nothing. They not only laughed at their misfortune, they participated in the looting of the city. They went through to pick up what the Babylonians had left behind. And that included, we find out as we, we read Jeremiah, people. They sold their brothers, their cousins, into slavery. This is why the Edomites are experiencing the judgment that we heard read about before I came up. Just as you have done it, 
so it will be done to you. You will get exactly what your deeds deserve. For just as you have drunk in my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. And this language of drink has the idea of judgment. They will drink continually. They will drink and they will drink. In the Hebrew, there's a different word for that second drink. They will drink and they will gulp down because it's too much, but they will continue to drink. They will continue to receive the judgment of the Lord because they have stood against their brother. I want to talk a little bit more about the day of the Lord and the hope that is given to Israel and to us in Obadiah when we come to the table later this morning. But right now, I just want to end reflecting on the sins of Edom against the sons of Jacob, the Israelites. And are we willing to ask ourselves the hard question, do I stand idly by doing nothing when I should do something? Am I involved in the work of the gospel in my community, or am I standing idly by and doing nothing? Do I take pleasure in other people's distress, even my enemy? I need to realign my heart and not take pleasure at their distress. Do I participate in wickedness against my brother? I think these are good questions for us to ask ourselves. What you have done will be done unto you. It's this ancient uh, code of justice called lex talionis. That means the law of the tooth. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We read this in the Scriptures. We also read it in the Code of Hammerub. This is a well-known code of justice. And God is saying, I will pour out on you what you poured out on others. There's hope. There's hope for the people of Israel. There's hope for us in Obadiah. But for right now, I think it's good for us to pause at this point in the text and reflect and ask the questions. Do I stand idly by? Do I rejoice at misfortune? Do I participate in evil? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we desire to be your people. We desire to be a people that look like your son in this world, where everything we say and everything we do serves to make you known. I pray that you would show us those areas where we are standing idly by. I pray that you would convict us of the vindictiveness of our heart when we celebrate at the misfortune of others. And I pray if there's any area in our life where we are taking advantage of someone else, maybe even in ignorance, that by your Spirit you would reveal that to us so that we might represent Christ well. Make us more like your Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer. We pray this in his name.